everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. Let's talk Ukraine. And what I see is a very dangerous access developing. And um, the impetus for me saying this is a, actually a tweet from someone named Joe Cervencione, who was a longtime uh, D.C. foreign policy guy, very involved in uh, efforts to stop nuclear tensions. Uh, he's the former president of the Plowshares Fund uh, and has worked for the Carnegie Endowment, Center for American Progress, all these liberal think tanks. This is what he said the other day on Twitter. He said, there is a pro-Putin access developing in America, and it runs through the MAGA GOP, the tech bros, libertarians, and into the peace movements. Some are consciously allying, some duped. So this talk about pro-Putin access, I mean, again, this is the same old neo-McCarthyism we've been seeing for a long time. But what I find scary is that if you invert this access he's talking about and look at who are those who are making this allegation. So here's someone who comes from a liberal think tanks was an advisor to Bernie Sanders. Um, that's one of Joe Cerencione's uh, former positions. He advised Bernie Sanders. And here's someone accusing everyone who dissents from the party line on the Ukraine proxy war of being in the pro Putin access. And who else said that effectively recently was AOC, the progressive lawmaker who said that, some protesters who heckled her over the Ukraine proxy war, her support for the Ukraine proxy war, she said they were repeating pro-Putin talking points. So right now in the U.S., we have a real access, and that is the access of uh, basically the entire Democratic Party, the entire Republican leadership, the uh, even members of the Trump administration like Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, who are active supporters of the Ukraine proxy war, uh, and the entire media, and also pretty much all the think tanks in Washington. That, to me, is a very scary access, because at least, you know, back during the Iraq war, you had some Democrats who were willing to stand up to militarism. Now they don't exist. Now the people at the far left of the Democratic Party, like I see, are accusing critics of the proxy war of of, uh, spreading pro-Putin talking points. And this comes as the... Ukraine proxy war is ever more dangerous. Uh, let me just read you one thing that David Petraeus just said. David Petraeus is very close to the Biden administration. He was the director of the CIA under Obama, presided over the early years of the, of the CIA dirty war in Syria. And he was interviewed by a French outlet this week uh, who asked him this. They said, what is the red line beyond which NATO must become more involved in the conflict? And Petraeus said this. I think the red line for NATO is directly related to the collective self-defense commitment of Article 5, and that is to say an attack against the NATO member's country. Okay, right. Fair enough. Sounds good. But then he says this. Having said that, I think it is possible that that Russia could take an action in Ukraine that would be so shocking and so horrifying that the U.S. and other countries might react in one way or another, but as a force multinational led by the U.S. and not as a NATO force, but as a multinational force led by the U.S. and not as a NATO force. So basically, Petraeus, while noting that the U.S. is only committed to uh, intervening uh, against Russia if it attacks another NATO member state, is making uh, or floating is floating an exception, saying that if Russia does something that is so shocking and horrifying, uh, then the U.S. might be compelled to intervene. That is a much different standard for intervention. It's basically, so what does that mean? If if the U.S. says that Russia has done something shocking and horrifying, then that would allow it to intervene. That's what he's saying. And to me, I think what he's effectively doing there, intentionally or not, is lobbying for a false flag. It's similar to you know the red line in Syria where Obama said that if there's chemical weapons being used, that might get me to intervene. Well, that incentivized anybody wanting to get the U.S. to intervene to carry out a false flag. And that's what I think Petraeus is effectively doing here, whether he intends to or not, is basically uh, promote uh, or encourage someone to to basically carry out an incident that can be blamed on Russia that can then compel NATO to intervene. And he's also just lowering the bar for the circumstances under which the U.S. could intervene. So let's say Russia does commit some uh, commit something terrible inside Ukraine. That 
according to Petraeus, could be enough for U.S. military intervention. And meanwhile, there is no force at all in Congress on the Democratic side willing to call this out. You are seeing some Republicans call for negotiations. Uh, Joe Kent, who's, a con- who's, who's running for Congress in Washington, he's a military veteran, is calling for that. Uh, but those are on the fringe of the Republican Party. And, you know, for all this talk that Republicans could scale back military aid to Ukraine if they win in November, I'm not buying that. Uh, I still see Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, even though McCarthy said a few things recently that indicate he might change his mind. I, I would bet on them being in lockstep with the uh, proxy war, which makes this whole pro-war access so dangerous because there's really no one to challenge it. It's, um, and it's everybody. And, you know, one of the leaders of it is none other than, of course, Liz Cheney. And listen to what she said today on Meet the Press about Kevin McCarthy, just to make sure that Kevin McCarthy, in case he's thinking of getting any funny ideas about interfering with the proxy war, just to make sure that he, 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 he toes the line. This is what she said. Let's talk about a speaker, Kevin McCarthy. You clearly think this is a mistake, uh, that he will, uh, you, you are concerned about his speakership. What specifically concerns you? Well, look, the speaker is second in line to the presidency. And at every moment uh, since, frankly, the aftermath of the election in 2020, uh, when uh, Minority Leader McCarthy has had the opportunity to do the right thing or do something that serves his own political purpose, he always chooses to serve his own political purpose. And, you know, that extends to what we've seen just in the last few days with these comments about uh, aid to Ukraine, the idea that somehow the party is now no longer going to support the Ukrainian people, which you know, for somebody who has a picture of Ronald Reagan on the the wall of his office in the Capitol, uh, the notion that now Kevin McCarthy is going to make himself the leader of the pro-Putin wing of my party is just a stunning thing. Uh, it's dangerous. He knows better. But the fact that he's willing to go down the path of suggesting that America will no longer stand for freedom, mm-hmm. I think, tells you he's willing to sacrifice everything for his own political gain. So that right there is the voice of the bipartisan establishment. Uh, people who have obsessed over January 6th, a three hour riot, have united to fund the Ukraine proxy war, to uh, give billions of dollars to the military industrial complex, to not say a word about encouraging Biden to uh, promote diplomacy. Basically, Biden said he won't even talk to Putin. None of these people have anything to say about that. If you look at AOC's statement when she was responding to those Protester. She doesn't mention at all Biden's policy of refusing negotiations and, according to some reports, even blocking them when Ukraine and Russia have made progress. And so that is right now who we're living under is bipartisan proxy warriors from Liz Cheney to AOC. No difference at all in their positions whatsoever. Try to find something that AOC and the squad have said that's different than what Liz Cheney has said. And it's nothing. They've either been silent or they've voiced support for the proxy war. And the reasons for that are simple, that if you want to have a future in this Democratic Party, you cannot challenge neocon foreign policy when it comes to these issues of like Ukraine. There's room, obviously, for some dissent on Palestine, but Palestine is not the issue that it used to be in shaping world politics. So there's, I guess, people in power tolerate more dissent now. But on these issues, there's no room at all. And that's why there's no difference between right now the squad and Liz Cheney. And... Um, they are people on the left have abetted this by uh, being silent. There's just not very much debate right now on the left about this. If you look at all the shows that get to interview progressive members of Congress, uh, they don't ask them about Ukraine uh, at all. So Democracy Now, for example, where I used to work, they've had on uh, Ro Khanna, they've had on Pramila Jayapal, they've had on Jamie Raskin multiple times, and all of them have been brought on to talk about January 6th. None of them have been asked to talk about the proxy war in Ukraine, which is just unbelievable. Uh, and unless you don't care about war and a war that is threatening nuclear conflict, then you just cannot excuse the silence on this issue, especially as the U.S. rule deepens. So let me just play a final clip and then we'll get to uh, calls. This is from CBS News um, talking about how the for the first time, the U.S. Army's 100, 101st Airborne Division is practicing for war with Russia just miles away from Ukraine's border. And the reporter for CBS even notes that the U.S. troops are basically putting themselves in a position where they can prepare to cross over into Ukrainian territory if they need to. 
at a forward operating site, we watched as U.S. soldiers and Romanian troops pounded targets in a joint ground and air assault. The tank rounds and artillery fire are real. So is the enemy. Meant to recreate the fight against Russian forces in Ukraine. A message to Russia and NATO allies alike, we're here. The real meaning for me to have the American troops here is like if you were to have allies in Normandy before any enemy was there. In all, roughly 4,700 soldiers of the 101st Screaming Eagles from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, have been deployed to reinforce NATO's eastern flank. You've had an opportunity to, to watch, to observe, possibly study the Russians. What do you think of them so far? So we're, uh, we're closely watching them. So we're building uh, objectives to, to practice against that replicate exactly what's going on in Ukraine. We're the closest American unit to the fighting in Ukraine. And what does that feel like? What does that mean? It, uh, it keeps us on uh, keeps us on our toes, right? So it makes Ready to fight tonight is a message that we've heard repeatedly. It's not just about defending NATO territory, but if the fight escalates and NATO partners are under threat, they're fully prepared to cross over into Ukrainian territory if ordered to do so. Back to you in the studio. Wow, so exciting that U.S. forces are preparing for World War III. That's essentially what they're saying here. And we're supposed to be encouraged by this for some reason. And again, in all these corporate outlets, the, this, the idea of diplomacy is not even a thought. It's just not even discussed. If it is, it's buried at the bottom of an article. It's just not really an issue. And the, the, the policy we've gotten again, again from Biden is that they are not willing to engage in anything. Uh, so that's it. Um, and uh, there's one more quote I wanted to read to you because I'm writing a book right now about all this, about how Russiagate led to Ukraine, uh, led to this crisis in Ukraine. And um, I found this quote from a few years ago from Kurt Volker. He was a former U.S. envoy in Ukraine and also a, a lobbyist who worked, who basically worked for Raytheon. And he was a, a major figure in the first Trump impeachment when Trump was impeached for freezing weapons to Ukraine while really while Rudy Giuliani was pressuring Ukraine apparently to open an investigation into Joe Biden and Volker emerged one of these national security state bureaucrats who were very much uh, opposed to freezing weapons because they thought it was so important to send weapons off to Ukraine for the proxy war there. Because again, this proxy war didn't begin with when Putin invaded. It's been going on for the last eight years, ever since the U S back coup. So Volker in 2021, uh, is writing about a summit between that occurred between Biden and Putin. And this was actually, this was at the summit where, where they held a, held a sit down meeting. If you remember it, they met in Sweden, I think it was, or somewhere in Europe and they had a sit down and there's the photo op of Biden and Putin and Blinken and Lavrov. And at that summit, if you, if you go back to it, you'll see that for Russia, one of the key issues was they wanted Biden to pressure Ukraine to implement the Minsk Accords and the Minsk Accords was the agreed upon settlement for ending the civil war in the Donbass, the war where Trump got impeached because he briefly froze some weapons that were intended to go to Ukraine to help prosecute that war. Um, and this is what Kurt Volker writes. And this just shows how, how, um, how determined the U.S. is to use Ukraine for a proxy war, how determined the U.S. is to continue confronting Russia rather than make any kind of diplomatic arrangement with it. Kurt Volker writes this. This is from June 2021. He says, this is why the summit is riskier for Biden and Putin. Any outcome that seems reassuring and benign on the surface actually works in Putin's favor. For the U.S., therefore, the best possible outcome is not one of modest agreements and a commitment to predictability, but one of a lack of agreements altogether. Success is confrontation. Okay, so this is a, you know, former top U.S. official very well connected uh, in the heart of the D.C. establishment, saying that the best outcome for a meeting between Biden and Putin is one of a lack of agreements altogether and where success is confrontation. So that really is the dominant attitude in Washington right now. Success is confrontation. And what that means in practice is that success is leading us to the threat of nuclear war. That's what counts as success to these people by encouraging confrontation and by defining Success as confrontation. All right.
And by, and just to underscore it, that is firmly the policy adopted by the entire left wing of the, of the Democratic Party, which is just to me unthinkable. Something I never as as low as I as, as low an opinion I have of the Democratic Party, I never would have thought that they'd be fully in lockstep with uh, the neocon right on an issue this important and this dangerous for the world. Okay, let's take some calls. Hey, Aaron. Can you yes. Hey, um, so, you know, I used to think that uh, they had kind of split the Russia and China uh, situation kind of skillfully where, um, and when I say they, I don't know exactly who, but they would give like China the issue, the issue for China or the issue for the Republicans would be China. And then the issue for the would be Russia. And that way you can't have like a unified... um, anti-war uh voice yep but it kind of seems like um even on the china issue the same players are going on to the same sides in this so you have the sort of uh um ununified i guess you would call them on the right now who are anti-war with china and anti-war with russia yep um and that's kind of crazy to me I, i mean if you if you had said to most people that the most that the most prominent voice for anti-war would be on you know a fox news show i mean i don't think anyone would have believed you 10 years ago um so i mean what do you what do you make of that and and do you think that the sort of splintered anti-war um group has any chance of gaining traction well i will say on the china thing i think uh, republicans who while claiming they're anti-war in Ukraine, are pro-war with China. So, for example, or at least pro-confrontation with China. So, for example, uh, Joe Kent, who I mentioned earlier, he said, um, you know, he he called for diplomacy with with Russia, and that sets him apart from any member of the Democratic Party, basically. But he then goes on to say, and this is on Twitter. I just saw this today, where he says that we need to basically separate Russia from China so we can take on China. And I don't know if he means militarily, but certainly, you know, that's an example where people on the Republicans, on the right, on the, on the, on the right wing side who are urging diplomacy in Ukraine, they have the agenda of basically ultimately, I think, wanting to confront China. Now, maybe he just means that by, you know, uh, splitting Russia with China, you, uh, you make Russia weaker economically and you split up, you know, the power of that alliance. He doesn't necessarily favor going to war with them, but certainly he favors some kind of hostility or confrontation not diplomacy there so i just think that's that is something to watch out for and but overall yes right now um even on china i think the most um like like recently when when nancy pelosi went and there was a whole controversy with taiwan and there was the threat of war uh it was on tucker carlson where i heard the most vocal call for diplomacy from doug mcgregor who was a regular guest on tucker carlson he's a former colonel and I didn't see any of that coming on the in the liberal media. So, um, but at the same time, there are bellicose people on Tucker Carlson's show, I'm sure, you know, urging confrontation with China. So it's it's a tough one. But yes, like on the my problem is the most dangerous issue right now is Ukraine. It's threatening nuclear war. That's the one I care about. And on that issue, undoubtedly, whatever their motives are, there are far more voices for sanity coming from the right right now than there is from the left. That's just a fact see them uh gaining any traction at all at some point these Just people on the right anti-war um coalition of any kind well you know what it happening because like you know if you're someone like if you're someone who cares about war right what are you supposed to do with the democratic party even their far left flank is voting in lockstep with liz cheney and mike pompeo so what room is there if you consider yourself anti-war for you in that party? And if you care about that issue, are you going to be willing to sacrifice other issues to join with the right um, if they're being more vocal about it? And if, I mean, if, for example, if it was true that Republicans actually would hold up uh, funding for the proxy war, uh, if that were actually true, I mean, you're going to have a lot of people defecting over to the Republicans. People don't want to see their tax dollars 
shipped off to warlords in Ukraine and to uh, war profiteers in Washington and to helping to block negotiations on such a devastating crisis. So I do think if this keeps up, that, yeah, you are going to see the right capitalize on this. If the right actually is going to, you know, practice what they preach, because it's easy to, you know, oppose it when you're in the minority and you're out of power. So, but if the right actually acts on some of this rhetoric that they've been putting out there, like if McCarthy actually um, freezes proxy war funding, I, I do think you'll have people going their way because, you know, for some people, of course, the Republicans are, uh, it, it's like, you, you know, it'd be impossible because of their views on immigration and uh, on uh, on social security. I mean, all the things that, that I think Republicans are horrible on. Uh, I personally could never support the Republican party, but I can't speak for everybody. And if they're like, if they're, if, if the alternative is so pro-war, then anybody who cares about war is going to look for an alternative. Okay. Thanks. And answer i uh it's been a long day already all right steven and steven if you're there there's a mute button in the bottom left of your screen and if not we'll move on but you can come back into the chat if you figure it out okay paul Uh, first of all, I'd like to, uh, commend you for your fantastic work. You guys are, uh, you guys are amazing. All your colleagues at the gray zone and your Substack as well. Uh, first and foremost, I just wanted to also, uh, uh, see if you had a chance to, uh, uh, chastise your father for not giving you a shout out on the Rogan, uh, on Rogan's podcast there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think, I think, I think it was a really, uh, really awesome, uh, episode and I was waiting for him to even mention all your hard work so that, uh, maybe we get you on Rogan someday, but, uh, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, um, no, I, I actually, I prefer not to, um, I don't like to involve my dad I, in the work I do. <laughs> Because, because, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, it's like the whole like nepotism thing, which I don't want to benefit from, there's also his work transcends politics, you know, because it's about psychology, Absolutely. the body. And I like that. And so he can reach people who otherwise would never want to hear what someone like me has to say. And so I, that's why I, I prefer to keep a distance between between us, you know, for that reason. And also just, again, not wanting to, to engage in, in nepotism. So, you know, I, I. I totally agree. I, I'm, yeah. I'm just poking poking fun at the uh, at the reality of the Everest of work that you have ahead of you <laughs> as compared yeah. To, yeah. compared to his uh, his yeah. uh, obviously encyclopedia. Um, I, I was just curious to get your take on if you feel that there was a direct connection, or obviously if uh, General Milley, the Chief uh, Joint Chiefs uh, General Milley, there his comments at the podium the other day were in direct response to. Number one, obviously, um, the uh, NATO efforts, uh, NATO proxy efforts are kind of failing and dwindling. Yep. And Putin's uh, comments to the uh, journalist, I'm not, I can't remember which, uh, which outlet he was, uh, he was working for, the journalist, when he, when he asked Putin um, if Ukraine could exist as a state, and his response this time around was, you know, drastically different from, you know, from the start of the special military, military operation. I was wondering if you think that Millie's comments is, as far as U.S. hegemony or the rules-based order, quote-unquote rules-based order, which basically means our rules, you know, yeah. to, to, to rule the world, um, is, is, is in direct response to, uh, to Putin's comments. Well, I don't know what, whether Millie was responding to Putin or not, but I, I just saw, I mean, U.S. officials have been saying this from the start, that, you know, Putin is violating the rules-based international order. And notice how they never say the law-based international order, because they don't care about the law. They care about the rules. And the rules are that the U.S. And that's what Russia is violating. And Putin's answer was interesting because, he, you know, he basically, uh, he didn't give a direct answer. And that suggests to me that he is preparing to basically destroy Ukraine as a state. Uh, or, is, or, or is open to that possibility. And uh, that's pretty scary. And, uh, you know, I don't follow Putin too closely, but I was told that, you know, that answer 
his non-answer to that question was was pretty striking. Um, okay, Imran. Muted myself. Uh, can yes. You hear me? I, mean, I commend you on your work. I mean, there's so much of it that I haven't been able to keep up with your Substack and uh, all the YouTube appearances, and God bless you uh, for them. I don't know if my question just sounds profound in my head or whether it's actually rather sublunary, but I'm curious, and I know not about what you're writing a book, but I, as I. I remember one of the prominent anti-Assad regime commentators being, you know, being on British television some six months ago, talking about how this was exactly like Syria, though I don't think he'd stepped foot in Syria during the conflict. Um, Oz Kataji, I think his name is, I don't know if he went to Syria, and he's one of those trolls who keeps trying to get you off Twitter, if I remember correctly. Um, yes. And you know, Syria. You know, uh, uh, you know, Syria keeps getting brought up, and um, you know whether or not the Obama administration holds as much responsibility as Trump. Anyway, uh, my my question has to do with more is more to do with you know these Ukrainians are courageous, and you know we keep getting fed this narrative as to you know they're defending their country, and granted, this may this may perfectly be, be construed as a war of aggression, even if someone defends them. Professor Mearsheimer would say that actually the Ukrainians unfortunately had it coming because of NATO's eastward expansionism. But we've gone to the point, we've, we seem to have moved from the point of, and I don't know what it is about war and uh, conflict, wherein we'll fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood to we will annihilate the planet and the entirety of the Northern Hemisphere if not the entirety of the inter- of the human race, in order to win some sort of, I don't know, pardon my language, pissing contest. Excuse me. Um, that's actually the most crude thing I've said in a while. I'm going to have to put something in the swear jar. Uh, with, with, with what seems to be a concocted enemy, given our, as, as in I live in Britain, and so, you know, our is in the NATO and the United States generally, Acts of aggression. What do you think it entails? I mean, Chris Hedges keeps talking about enemy as per, I think, two books ago, you know, we're a civilization and basically suicide. And so we cannot as to the outcome. What do you think is going on here? Uh, this is on a psychological level. And policy wonks and people who identify with them in media are so driven by this idea of American exceptionalism which all empires are driven by. I mean, the British said the exact same things about themselves, that we are so, um, that we are so noble and we have a duty to spread our ideals to the rest of the planet. I mean, that's how you justify ruling over the planet is you pretend that the planet needs you and needs you to spread your values and ideals because they're so backward and they're so committed to that. And that sort of identity gives them meaning and sustenance in life. I mean, you know, that's what they, I think, derive happiness and purpose from. Uh, and and also from all the power that that gives them as, as a result, that they just privilege that above everything else. And it allow it clouds their thinking. So they just cannot see clearly uh, what is in the interest of the planet because their main thinking is what is in the interest of our power and our hegemony, of our rules-based international order. I mean, they don't, they even come out and say it. Um, the, uh, there are even some lines of, in the Washington Post and the New York Times early on in the, in the Ukraine crisis. And I've quoted them in my Substack for basically some U.S. officials say that, um, excuse me. Um, some U.S. officials say that, you know, uh, that Russia wants to see if the U.S. is willing to discuss any constraint on U.S. power and, any constraint on U.S. dominance of transatlantic security. I mean, that's pretty much what it's about, is will the U.S. countenance um, any kind of limits on its power? Because they've been using Ukraine to expand their power for the last eight years. I mean, that's what's at the heart of all this. And, um, you know, they can say, yes, Ukraine has fought bravely. That's just true. Uh, you, you know, Ukraine put up a really brave fight in the face of the Russian invasion. I mean, not one that many people expect, including myself. But the problem with that narrative is, first of all, 
it's not a natural law that we're obligated to just support anyone fighting because they were invaded, especially if we, there were diplomatic opportunities to avoid all this. And those have been the Minsk Accords uh, of the last you know, seven years, which the U.S. ignored. And all the proposals that Russia put forward before it invaded, which the U.S. refused to even discuss on the core issues that was admitted by uh, Derek Cholet, who is a um, who is a Biden administration official or it was either him or. Yeah, I believe I believe it was Derek Cholet, either him, him or Colin called in an interview with War on the Rocks, where they said that on the core issue of NATO expansion, we wouldn't even discuss it with Russia. So the U.S. wouldn't even discuss Russia's core grievance. And another problem with that narrative is it, you know, the problem is it's not just Ukraine uh, via the government we support that's been fighting. There have been Ukrainians for the last eight years also fighting on the rebel held side. Rebel held side. They're called separatists here in the U.S., but, but they're not separatists. They just didn't want to live under a coup government that was attacking their culture uh, and banning the Russian language and tolerating massacres like what occurred in Odessa in May 2014, when dozens of people were burned alive by pro-coup uh, supporters. And they've been fighting for their Id- identity of Ukraine and their vision of Ukraine. But because it conflicts with this Galician uh, notion of Western Ukraine, the followers of Bandera, the Nazi collaborator, they don't exist in the U.S. And so the only Ukrainians who's fighting and the cause we care about are those who are on our side and who are using uh, as a tool to weaken Russia. So uh, these um, narratives are powerful. Nobody... There are very few people are, are, are willing to challenge them. Right. Uh, now to get to your dad, anything about attachment parenting vis-a-vis these lunatics whom we have to follow, unfortunately? I'm just being facetious. That's yeah, all. no, that's not my wheelhouse. That's, <laughs> no, uh, that's his. Uh, but no, I, I, I am thankful for that response. I didn't realize that that kind of God complex has actually overcome these policy wonks and think tanks. And um, maybe Robert Fisk was actually right when he was complaining about them 20 and 30 years ago, long before I was interested in, in these subjects. Thank you, but appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Next caller is Maria. And Maria, if you're there, there's a mute button in the bottom. Nope. Okay. Next caller. Go ahead. Uh, good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Excellent. Uh, long time, first time. Uh, hi, Aaron. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say that um, how much I appreciate your work. Uh, sort of a lone voice of sanity. Uh, I, I well, I feel like. Um, there's a lot to talk about, really, um, but I wanted to ask what your views are on a potential settlement um, in terms of, you know, let's say one might find sufficient uh, political voice, let's say, to, to make sure that peace uh, perseveres of, of, or peace is reached of some kind. Although I don't think there are, to be honest, I'm, I'm quite sort of desperate for it, but I, I don't think there, there are any. Um, but even if there were, right, what would a settlement look like, given that so much blood has, in, has been invested by now, uh, both by the Russians and the Ukrainians, um, and the political careers of basically everybody in charge of uh, the EU, for example, are so invested in, you know, in this whole thing that, that sort of going backwards seems like a complete impossibility. Um, it, yeah, it's, so, it's like, a great question. Yeah. It, it's a great question. Okay, I'm going okay. to I'm gonna ask you to mute yourself while I'm talking. Mute yourself while I'm talking. Yep. Um, well, look, early on in the war, there was a settlement reached reportedly between Ukraine and Russia. And it basically was that Ukraine was going to declare neutrality to not join NATO. And... Russia was going to withdraw to the 2014 lines. And I don't know if they reached an agreement on what, what would happen to Crimea, but I guess I think they decided that they would at minimum just discuss that at a later date. But that was the basic premise that, you know, that Ukraine was going to declare neutrality and not to join NATO. And that was Russia's core demand. Uh, at this point now, now we have a situation where Russia has formally annexed these territories of Ukraine and there are people inside those territories, 
and I'm not saying that it's a majority because I, I actually have no idea what percentage of people want to stay in or, or want to be in Russia and don't. I do know that Russia has a strong base of support there, but I don't know, you know, whether that's the majority or not. I do think in Crimea, it's clear from the polls, the vast majority of Crimeans want to be a part of Russia. That's been clear for the last 30 years when Crimeans have tried many times to uh, vote to separate from Ukraine and to join Russia. Um, so that to me is not in doubt what Crimea wants. But in, in terms of the, the, these other territories, I think you have a much more divided population. But the exact numbers, I don't know. But look, Russia has promised to those people who do want to be a part of Russia that they are Russian now. And that they, and I just don't see Russia after investing all this in this war, I don't see them going back on that. And in that case, what, what then does diplomacy look like? Well, at this point now, it might just look like surrender, whether it's Ukraine surrendering or it's, or it's Russia surrendering. That to me is the only outcome at this point. I don't see anything else. Uh, but surrender is better than continuing this war and sacrificing more people and, you know, pushing the world into the even more dangerous threats that, that this is heading in. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, uh, I agree with that. Um, and then it's a, well, and then it's a matter of figuring out, f- figuring out for yourself, I suppose, um, uh, whose surrender one, w- w- one would prefer. But yeah, I mean, what's insane to me is, is exactly as you said, uh, originally there was very much sort of a, a, uh, an off ramp for this. And it was a fairly easy one. I think, in fact, the whole invasion and the way it's gone about, um, you know, and there's a lot of talk about Kiev being a feint, etc. I mean, I don't think it was a feint necessarily. It was just a, a show of force and seriousness to 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 force the Kiev uh, government to basically come to a to an understanding. Um, and that didn't happen. And now, as well, I'm afraid it, it's as you say, it's you know, a, a battle to. Uh, to to the surrender and every last drop of Ukrainian and or Russian blood, um, and in the meantime, as a European, it, it's you know <laughs> Europe's in the shitter as well, and uh, times are very dark indeed. Anyway, thanks very much. Uh, get an opportunity. I didn't get an opportunity to fo- <laughs> follow up my last uh, comment here, so I apologize. You can kick me down if you need to. I pressed the hang up instead of the uh, okay, no, no, last time. No, that's fine. <laughs> But um, uh, just to wrap up, I wanted to ask if there was any opportunities um, to collaborate or, you know, if you had any opportunity or contact between uh, Ava Bartlett and Vanessa Bealey um, that have uh, spent quite a uh, a significant amount of time on the ground there in the Donbass regions and uh, obviously in a lot of the uh, uh, pretty uh, treacherous territory there. And if you intend to, you know, make any contact or communicate with them directly. Uh, To be honest, I don't. Uh, They don't like me. Um, they, uh, think I'm a Johnny come lately when it comes to Syria. So they were on the ground in Syria doing, um, reporting there. And they see me as someone who came along very late to the game. And, um, the, the, for whatever reason, uh, you know, uh, they, <laughs> they've been critical of me for that. And, you know, they've also taken issue with some statements I've made about Syria that, you know, that they don't like. I've, I have said that I think Syria is a police state. They don't like that. And they, you know, look, there were times when I was duped by some of the propaganda around Syria. Uh, and uh, I said some things that were false and they pointed those out and have not forgiven me for, for, for being wrong. So that's, I don't see, I don't see us collaborating, but uh, of course, um, the Venezuela recently was put on a hit list by the Ukrainian government. And, um, and I believe Eva Bartlett was as well. And also uh, at the gray zone, uh, Max Blumenthal reported that Vanessa Bealey was uh, the target of an effort to be sanctioned. Like some, some European Union lawmakers were circulating uh, a letter to try to get her sanctioned just for because she went to the Donbass to report on the elections, which, of course, I oppose. And, um, and I support her uh, freedom to do, of course, the work that, that she does. And and she faces government persecution because of it and because of the work that she does. But personally, will there be a collaboration between us? I no, I doubt it. <laughs> I'm sure an olive branch can be uh, can be extended both ways. I, I hope that happens because uh, I really love um, all the hard work that you all put uh, put in. So 
And uh, hey, even if you were a Johnny come lately to a lot of the reporting there, I'm, I'm sure that they would appreciate any uh, Olive Branch both ways as well, because uh, you guys are you guys are fantastic, and I appreciate your work. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Amanda. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Um, so this is this is the newbie to foreign policy question of the week. What do you think we would be spending our time and attention and energy and money on if we weren't dealing with this this Ukraine situation? I mean, I know there's tons of stuff going on in the world. And we're distracted. They keep saying that we're putting sanctions on Russia to weaken them. You think what we're doing is weakening us. What do you think we would be spending our time and attention and dollars on? I mean, even foreign policy-wise. Depends who we is. So if we means the establishment, they're always going to look for an enemy to target. Uh, they exist off of that. You have to have an enemy to be able to justify all these military expenditures and all this uh, effort made to destabilize foreign governments. So, uh, But I, I, I suspect it, it, it would have been China uh, because that is – like China is now the main – economic counterweight to the U.S. And people in power want to undermine that. And um, instead, they got caught up in this Russia-Ukraine uh, thing. And also in the process, I think, pushed Russia and China even closer together. So from that point of view, this hasn't worked out for them. But I, just I, I do suspect that I'm whenever part of the Ukraine war ends, I mean, uh, and hopefully so it will end not, soon, then we'll see uh, China once again being clear. the main focus, but the main target of the establishment. And that does mean the people making the decisions for us foreign policy-wise. But, yeah. Thanks. Uh, well, yeah. Oh, yes. That is a much better question. Thanks. Yeah. Have a good well, day. Well, look, uh, I mean, uh, the question is, what would we be doing if we lived in a real democracy? You know, instead of... Oh. Instead of... A, and, and thanks. Yeah. Um, in, instead of living in a managed democracy where we're given the illusion of choice, but ultimately it's no matter who's in power, the, the policies are pretty much the same. And so if we lived in a real democracy, well, you know, we'd be focusing on whatever issues the people would really want to focus on. And for average people, it's, it's, you know, jobs and well, and their well-being and healthcare and all those things. And um, all this is a way to distract us from that, I think. You too. You too. Thank you. Okay, Wendy. Okay, I'm just, um, I watched your, or listened to Useful Idiots with you and um, her name is escaping me right now. Katie, yeah. is that it? Um, and you guys interviewed yeah. Douglas McGregor. And I was curious because at one point he talked about this part of the need for Ukraine was to weaken the connections or prevent connections between Russia and Germany that were forming through their uh -huh. need for energy. So I was curious, I think it was a Swedish paper that put out a note, and this is only part, um, put out a note, a leaked RAND report that indicated that that, that was in fact one of the goals was yes. to weaken Germany and immediately came out and said, no, that's fake. That's not real. But after listening to McGregor, I'm like thinking, okay, how do we know it's not real? How do you know which one is the truth? You know? And the second thing, because it relates back to Rand in 2016. So it was written before 2016, but when I was re researching for that election, I stumbled on a RAND report that was um, referring to the pivot to Asia. And I do not remember why there was a need, but there was a need to occupy Russia. And they suggested using NATO to keep uh, uh, Russia occupied while we were pivoting to uh -huh. Asia. And I don't understand, to me it seems like Ukraine and China and our pivot to Asia are all very much intertwined and very much what 
both establishments want. And if we only have Republicans and Democrats to vote for, there's no way out. I mean, if there are a few Republican voices speaking out against this war right now, what makes you think that they have the backbone to stand up against the establishment um, any more than Bernie Sanders, AOC, yeah. any of those yeah, people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, so, there's a lot of questions. I don't think they have the backbone. Um, I said earlier that I don't think actually if Republicans take the House, they're actually going to do anything. I think they're just basically using this, the anti-war sentiment that exists to appeal to voters. But I, I, I'd be very surprised if they actually follow through and, and cut funding for the proxy war. And in terms of the RAND report, look, there was a RAND report recently, or what, what was said to be a RAND report, talking about the strategy to use Ukraine to cut off Russia and Germany. And it just, if you read it, the English is not that great. It's not, it's it just, it sounded fake to me and it was fake. Um, now there are other uh, RAND reports that they have put out on their website. You can read them. Well, they talk about the main goal of the U.S. should be to stop Nord Stream 2 and should be to um, and also to you know, deepen Russian involvement in Ukraine because that would that would extend Russia militarily. So what is officially published by Rand is, is pretty damning in itself. Yeah. But I mean, we have an election coming up that seems basically pointless because it's nothing's going to change. So given the fact that that is what the establishment is intent on, how, I mean, how do we change the direction? That, that, is there question. any change in the uh, direction? I, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that. All we can do as people is organize together around issues that we care about and try to make a difference. But there's none of that right now. There, there's not really a big anti-war movement right now because that's been weakened by Obama and then Russiagate. So we need to, if we cared about that, we should rebuild it. But it's difficult. It's, it's just, it's, it's among the many challenges we face. Okay. Well, thank you very much for keeping us Thank you. Rest. Thank I you. Appreciate okay. It. You too. You have a good week. Ron. Heather. Hi, thanks for all your work. Um, I I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if there isn't a sort of a schism in the military a little bit because it seems like this. Uh, this uh, you know, Hillary. I remember her stumping on the Cold War, and I was thinking she has PTSD. You know, the Cold War yeah. is gone, right? And now it's with us again. And uh, and it seemed like that was an, uh, a movement, an old guard movement, more or less. Uh, you know, the big military systems, apocalyptic warfare. Uh, represented from the Democratic Party. And I'm wondering if there's actually kind of a schism in there, you know, where you have, its military is large enough that it could easily have, you know, factions in it. If there, if there are any factions that are, you know, promoting some other awful warfare, <laughs> you know, like you know, actions in Syria and things like that. So you're is asking, divide, is, it, you think? is there a schism inside the military right now? Yeah. Uh I don't know. That's not my wheelhouse. I don't know. Certainly, certainly, there are people inside the Pentagon who don't want to fight a war with Russia. That's been made clear because um, they know what that would look like. The people who don't fight wars, like the bureaucrats in the State Department and the National Security Council, they're more driven by, by ideology, I think. And so that allows them to not think clearly. But people inside the Pentagon who don't want to fight Russia. There are some there. So it's almost like we're in a situation where the most restraining forces are those, not who, whose job it is to do, to, to, to do diplomacy, like in the State Department, but actually those whose job it is to fight wars, which is the Pentagon. I see. Okay. I want to thank you for, and I'm a huge fan. I love following you, and uh, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. It makes my life a little bit better. You know, thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate thank you. That. Okay. Bye. Bye. Uh, Eric. Okay. Uh, yeah, there we go. Eric. Hello. Live. All right. You can hear me then. Okay. Super. All right. 
right. Well, it's good uh, hearing from you. And um, I think I forgot if I asked you if it was me who asked you this or if I just saw you talk about it. But anyways, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to do something, a bit of uh, pushback that I think might be a little useful just to just to throw this little, uh, let's say, throw the tennis ball around. Um, And it would be this. Explain to me as if I have no idea who Lyndon LaRouche is and why I shouldn't like him. Because, and I'll be quite honest, I know only the really the name. Here's what I know about Lyndon LaRouche is that he has some, it's some guy who named Lyndon LaRouche and he has some beef against the British royal family. And um, I remember, you know, I remember when I was, when Obama was first elected, they were the ones who I guess who came out with the picture of Obama where he has the little Hitler mustache so I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, that's a little strange. Um, but other than that, I really don't know who that is. And it's more to the point, I don't know why I should be worried to associate with those people. So um, just explain to me like I'm a five-year-old. Well, look, what's going you know, on Look, there. I'll be honest. I don't know much about LaRouche either. What I do know is that it's a movement that has um, – uh, the, they've been around for a while. I've, I've just seen them const- you know, in, in every city. And they overlap with some anti-war sentiment. But – I just was always under the impression that it was kind of culty and that they really worshiped the sky of LaRouche. And I just didn't, you know, it, it always rubbed me the wrong way. And I've been told they have some far right views on something, but actually I don't remember uh, what that is. So I, I can't give you really a detailed explanation. I just going off my own intuition from years of interacting with LaRouche people. And not that that means the members are bad people. And I've met members of the LaRouche thing and they're nice people and they I, I agree with a lot of their views on on foreign policy but still it's just as an organized force these things can can be culty sometimes and that's just been my impression of them and um my other but my broader point though was i don't care who these people are who heckled aoc the point is the question is not who they are but whether or not they're right and what they said that aoc was feeling a disastrous proxy war was correct and that's what i care about you know um, I'm not going to uh, dismiss Medicare for all just because one of its supporters, like Bernie Sanders or AOC, are are also supporting the Ukraine proxy war. So, you know, individuals and affiliations don't matter so much as, as issues do. And that's that's where I'm coming from on this. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you say culty, and I think, okay, do you mean like a some young moon cult, or do you mean a Charles Manson cult? And um, I, I had the opportunity of meeting Stephen Wertheim. I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, but he's you know a, he's a voice of progressive foreign policy restraint. But you know, it occurred to me, you know, he's written in the Atlantic, and it's like, well, okay, Jonah Goldberg, you know, is personally tortured, you know, uh, Palestinians, Jeffy, yes. but yet nobody would ever. Jeffrey Goldberg, sorry, yeah, different. <laughs> I don't, yeah, exactly. Jeffrey Goldberg, um, and you know, of course, in addition to trying to foment war with Iran, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, okay, ha, well, has Lyndon Larouche ever done anything that's a, that bad? That's a totally um, fair because, point. A, and, and that's why it's it's stupid yeah. to disqualify people based on who they affiliate with, because if you were to do that, then basically the entire establishment media and the entire Democratic Party would be would be disqualified, and um, it's not anyone's place to decide who is left or not especially when you're someone like AOC who's voting in lockstep with neocons. So does that mean that to be left, you have to be a neocon now? You know, that just doesn't make any sense. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Eric. Hi, Fred. Hi there. Hi, Aaron. Um, um, so, I don't know, I, I was away for a while, uh, came back, watching the news, everything does, it still doesn't make sense. So, with the Western media, right, like, when you watch the press conferences and stuff, how they're able to grow the Russian diplomats, like, if they were to do the same thing to the Western diplomats, won't we come to a better understanding of what's going on and um, the propaganda going on with both sides? Because... Be able to they throw tough questions to, towards the Russian diplomats, but then when it comes to the Western, it seems like they don't want to ask them any question or find um, a way to resolve this conflict going on. Hello. Um, 
so your question is that Russian diplomats are being barred from from television and and from media, and that's a mistake. Is that what you're asking? No, no, it's it's not about that. It's about some of the interviews I see. Like they they get tough questions, and it seems like they have an argument to their side. But you never see, you never hear the Western um, diplomats get asked um, asked tough questions whenever they go to the UN meetings and stuff like that. Do their job. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and in fact, there was recently uh, Sergey Lavrov a few weeks ago was at the UN. He's the Russian foreign minister, and he did a press conference where he answered questions from the entire media corps that was there. And um, he answered all their questions and he got some really tough questions. And it was really interesting. And you would never, ever, ever see, you would never, ever, ever see uh, Anthony Blinken face that kind of scrutiny from his own press corps. And that speaks to just how servile our media corps is. And I, I recommend you watch, for those who haven't seen it and are interested, I'll, I'll put a link to it right now. I think this was it right here. Um, the link I just posted in, in the chat of Sergey Lavrov being asked questions that, again, would never be asked of Anthony Blink. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Go ahead, next caller, which is Creo. Cryo. Okay, and if not, we'll move on to Jenny. Hi, Aaron. Hi. I'm wondering if you're following the the beating up that's happening on Twitter of David Sachs. He's the founder of Colin, as you well know. Yeah. But um, somebody called it Sachs derangement syndrome this past week, and I think it really fits. And I was watching the All In Pod a week ago, and he talked about how he's going to take a break. And I really think that the way that he's treated by the other hosts and this Sachs derangement syndrome is telling because I think he's called the war almost perfectly in his articles and his arguments on Twitter. And he says he wants to devote more time to doing that type of work. And I just wonder what will happen to that pod if he leaves permanently and they get this wake up call about how many people watch that or listen just so they can hear Sachs's take on things. Well, uh, I have seen some of the uh, vitriol he's attracted for, you know, just basically calling for diplomacy and saying that it's not in the U.S. interest to, you know, risk this proxy war or uh, to wage this proxy war just to see who rules over the regions of eastern Ukraine. And in response, he gets called all kinds of names. And it's the same thing. It's the same, it's the same McCarthyite tactic that anybody who dissents from the state narrative faces. And um, he's been attacked by all the usual neocon suspects, uh, people who write for the Atlantic. And he pointed out, that he's like, I don't want to hear from the experts who brought us Iraq and Syria and Libya and Yemen and Afghanistan. They're the ones who are discredited. And because they're so discredited, all they can do is just uh, try to uh, excommunicate anybody, any heretic from, you know, enlightened opinion by calling them names and Putin sympathizers and all the usual name, uh, name calling. And David, to his credit, has really stood up to that and called it out. Because a lot of people, you know, when you face so many attacks and you're facing these efforts to brand you as a heretic, it's very easy to get shook by it. And David stood up to it. And I, you know, anyone who does that, I always really appreciate it because it's not easy. Well, in the business. We want to hear your opinion on how to start a, a new <laughs> yeah. company. Why yeah. are you talking about these international things? And he, you can tell he's like shaking his hands going, look, if you don't understand the impact that this war is going to have on everybody's business, all of our lives, you don't understand how this works. If we escalate to World War Three, there won't be business. We'll be surviving, you know. And so I, I'm so proud of him and you, Michael Tracy. You know, you're just not willing to budge. And, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm, you know, just amazed at the strength that you're all showing. And I do think that we will have some resolution soon, that one way or the other, we'll know which way this thing's going to go. And I'm just praying that it'll just tamp down and 
and we'll be able to all move on with our lives. Anders, are you there? Hi. Yes, I am, Aaron. Uh, big fan. Uh, I'm under the impression, uh, forgive me, my, uh, my first uh, language is not English, so yeah. I'm under the impression that uh, both the US and Russia equally gives a shit about the people in uh, in the Ukraine and, of course, in the US or Russia. Uh, uh, isn't this about economic isolation of Russia? And also, I've uh, read somewhere and seen on, on YouTube about uh, new oil explorations or like they found a lot of oil in the ukraine which has not been uh you know they haven't got it up from the ground yet and isn't isn't this about uh, uh, isolating russia and furthermore dominate that region and well but that's my question how much do oil actually uh play into all of this i'm not familiar with the thank you yeah um i'm not familiar with the oil component uh, that's something I, I haven't heard. I think the goal is just to use Ukraine because of its proximity to Russia uh, to uh, pull it out, to pull it firmly into the Western camp and then, you know, use, you know, take away Ukraine's role as a buffer between Ukraine and the, and the rest of uh, uh, Europe uh, from which uh, Russia could be attacked militarily, you know, pull that firmly into, into, into the NATO camp and force Russia to react. And so that to me is the ultimate geopolitical interest is 